The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 398 for Monday, May 21st, 2012. Greetings, folks, and welcome. Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, we provide some answers, you send in some tips, we provide some tips. Together, we all learn a little something new each and every time we come together here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. There he is, John F. Braun, ladies and gentlemen. He'll be here all hour. <laughs> At least an hour, I would At least. Hope. That's right. Yeah. Uh... You know what? I want to tell you about our first sponsor. Let's go. Let's let's change. Whoa. Let's change the order. All right. Why not? You know, we'd like to change things up a little bit. It's VMware uh, at VMware dot com slash Mac. And uh, and the real takeaway is you get 10 percent off if you use the coupon code MGG. So uh, normally forty nine ninety nine, you get five bucks off thereabouts. In fact, that's that's what you get is five bucks off. And uh, so you get it for, you know, about forty five bucks, a little little less than forty five bucks. In fact, and this is VMware Fusion 4 for Mac. This is, it's currently my favorite virtualization software. Um, it, and by that, I mean, virtualization allows me to run other operating systems while I'm also running my Mac OS, right? So I boot up Mac OS just like I normally would. And then I run VMware as an application. And then within that, I can run other operating systems, uh, Really, it's built for people who need to run Windows apps. And what's cool is you have two ways of doing it. You can run Windows uh, and you can see Windows either in a window or full screen view. Right, John? Uh, and then that that's fine. And you run Windows and it, your Mac, you know, r- runs an X uh, pretty much like a Windows machine. And because your Mac has an Intel processor, of course, it all this stuff is running relatively natively. So it it's really, really screaming fast. But uh, but then you can also kind of get rid of the Windows desktop and let all your Windows apps run alongside your Mac apps. And really, they just kind of work almost the same as each other. It's really pretty cool what they've done with that. In addition, uh, you can virtualize other operating systems if you want to run Linux, even if you just want to play around with or experiment with Linux. This is a great way to do it. Uh, And you can also run Lion in, in virtualized mode. That's now allowed. So if you want to play around with Lion, especially listeners of the show, you want to you want to test some of the crazy things that John and I talk about. Well, if you're running it in a virtualized environment, you really can't mess up anything outside of that unless you really go out of your way to do it. So you can test all kinds of things. And if you don't like it, just wipe it out and you're not messing with your main Mac, even though you're doing all of this on your main or perhaps only Mac. So VMware.com slash Mac is the play to go place to go. Make sure you use the coupon code. M G G because that's going to get you your, your 10% off. So, uh, so do that quickly. Uh, I think that coupon code is good for, uh, for at least another week, perhaps a little bit longer. So, so make sure you get, uh, you get there and, and do that, uh, within the next week or so by, by the end of May figure if, if you get it by the end of May, you're going to be able to get that coupon code. So VMware.com slash Mac. And I guess with that, we go to Larry huh, John. Unless you have uh, unless you have anything to to add quickly here before we before we get into the questions portion of the show, um, 
I use VMware. I run Windows XP on it, along with go. Microsoft development tools. Works great. Awesome. All right, perfect. That gave me an opportunity to sip a little bit of my mint tea. And so now we will go to Larry. Larry writes, I'm writing you from 37,000 feet over Northern California on my way home to Seattle. While sitting around the San Diego airport, I attempted to sign on to their free Wi-Fi with my 13-inch MacBook Pro running the most recent update of Lion. And even though I could get my iPhone to connect, no such luck with the MacBook Pro. I restarted. I tried different sequences, turned airport on, then off, then on, then launched the browser. Tried different browsers, all to the same non-effect. I figured I'd wait until I got on the plane and then just connect with GoGo, a service that has always worked for me in the past. But no go with GoGo. So how am I able to write and send this? By restarting in boot camp and connecting via Windows 7. How humiliating. Uh, am I the lone unconnected ranger or are there issues with Lion, MacBook Pros and airplanes that I simply haven't heard about before? Many thanks for your wisdom. Well, I think we have wisdom for you, but uh, but you may want to hold your thanks until you test it. Uh, I have seen this before. So this is this was, you know, I love it when. Uh, we get enough information like this to have a really good troubleshooting test case because he tried all the good stuff and knowing that this works on the same hardware with a different operating system is perfect, right? Because when you boot in, in boot camp, you know, that's not doing virtualized. So uh, in this case, it's a great test. It's kind of a pain in the neck to do. And, and that's why you might want a virtualized environment like we mentioned in the ad. But Bootcamp boots your Mac straight from Windows, so there is no Mac OS running. And the fact that your your Mac was able to connect when running Windows tells us that it has something to do with how that connection is happening. And I've seen this before. And where I have found the answer is by default, the Mac does not set what's called a DHCP client ID. Now, DHCP is the protocol that's used for any computer or device. Your iPhone uses this, your iPad uses this, everything uses it. Now, all, all these devices use that to get an IP address from whatever router they're connecting to it. So you don't have to type in all the details. Uh, but some DHCP servers or routers uh, only hand out addresses once per DHCP client ID. And if your Mac's client ID is blank, and someone else's is blank, then it might think that the same device is trying to get two addresses and then, you know, things go haywire. Ooh. Yeah. So good point, because I think the other parameter that can be used is the would be the Mac address of whatever interface. In this case, I would assume wireless. Right. Is the other parameter that a DHCP server could look at to say, all right, what, what am I going to do here? Oh, all right. Well, here's your Mac address. But the client ID, yeah, as you're pointing out, is the other major parameter that you can hand out to the DHCP server. You do a broadcast yep. saying, hello, any uh, DHCP server, it's me. Please give me an address. And those are the two values, I think, that help it decide what it should do. Right. That's right. So I have seen it, whatever the reason, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing at the reason, but I have definitely seen situations where trying to connect to some and typically home routers don't care about this uh, client ID, but seeing it, uh, I have seen this on some, you know, public access routers where I can't get connected and I go into my MacBook pros uh, or my MacBook airs or whatever uh, network settings. You go into system preferences, network, Wi-Fi, advanced, 
TCP IP. So it's buried. And then you'll see DHCP client ID right there. And it's likely going to be blank. Fill that in with something relatively unique. Don't just put like PC there or even Mac there. You know, I, I put like Dave's MacBook Air or Dave MacBook Air or Dave Air or something and put that in and hit OK and hit apply. And and then that often will solve the problem. And I'm guessing in your in your case, uh, Larry, that that's going to solve your problem, because as you've proven, the hardware is capable of getting a DHCP address from or an IP address from that server because you did it using a different operating system. And hey, guess what? Windows by default adds a client ID to every DHCP request out by, you know, as I said, by default. So I think that's probably going to solve your problem. If you have something there, change it and then request a new address because that can also, you know, make it so that the server says, oh, wait a minute, I haven't talked to you before. Let me, you know, let me do that. So, so that's okay. my, uh, that's my theory. I'm sticking with it. I, uh, I, I totally good, agree with your theory. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to throw in a bonus tip, Dave. That's good. <laughs> so with, at least with the Apple airport utility, if you go into the airport utility and, and this is related, it, it's relevant. It's not too much of a tangent, no, but I think going. it complements what you said. Yeah. So if you go in the airport utility and say internet DHCP, now we talked about this before, but well, that's not important. Right. So why did I mention it? I don't know. <laughs> Erase that. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> so, but there's something called DHCP reservations. And I'm wondering if this may be a, a part of it, but even if it's not, uh, one thing that you can do, and I do this, Dave, and I think you do this as well, is that when you set up your network, I, I think a good strategy with DHCP, so DHCP normally just uh, hands out an address to anybody that asks for it, but DHCP reservations in the airport utility, so if you go to internet DHCP, you will then see in the airport utility DHCP reservations. Now, there are one of two ways to reserve these, and that's why I wanted to mention this, because I think it's important. So if you go to that section and you click on the plus there's going to be two parameters here for you to reserve an address. One is, as I mentioned, or hinted at, the MAC address. And the other, as you're suggesting, is the DHCP client ID. So there are two ways for you uh, within any network. Now, I prefer to use the MAC address because that's guaranteed to be unique. I think the DHCP client ID probably offers you more flexibility if if you're you know using different machines or different devices, um, you can map a DHCP client ID to an IP address as well using DHCP reservations. So thought I mentioned that because it, it does touch on this. Yeah, good stuff, great stuff, good. All right, you want to uh, you ready to take Phil here? Oh, where is Phil? I'm going to find Phil while we're while we're talking about uh, using Windows uh, sometimes with our Macs. I think Phil, okay. Phil has right. a good, Phil has a and good, here's, and here's Phil's questions. Yes. Yep. So Phil says, I own a black MacBook and a Dell. Oh, well, that's cool. No, I like Dell. Yeah. They're good computers and a Dell laptop that I use as a media hub that I stream to my Apple TV since it's hard drive is bigger than the SSD in my Mac. I do a lot of video conversions on my Mac and want to be able to transfer them to the Dell without copying to USB and plugging it into the Dell any solutions. So it sounds to me like what he's doing is he's either using a thumb drive or an external USB drive to transfer the data between the two computers. And you could certainly do that, but that's, that's certainly the non optimum way. And clearly now, he's on me, a network because he's streaming to his Apple TV. So yeah, there's a better way. 
Right. So, so one solution, well, I'm going to offer the solution that I would offer to get the maximum, maximum throughput here. And the thing is your Mac can talk windows. And I think this will be the best solution. And also because all modern computers here. So, so my suggestion here is that what you want to do is enable file sharing. So what you want to do is go on your Mac, click on share, uh, go to system preferences, click on sharing, and then click on file sharing. And now here's the trick, though. If you're talking to a Windows machine, is you're going to see a little options dot, dot, dot button in there. What you want to do is click on that, and that will offer you some additional options. Now, it's funny because actually they scaled back on this, Dave. I noticed this. So I'm looking right now on my mini, which is my podcast machine, and they offer not one, not two, but three options. So one, of course, is AFP, which is Apple File Protocol. That's the Apple or Apple Talk over TCP IP. The second one, which as far as I've seen in Lion, they've removed or hidden, is FTP, which you probably shouldn't be using anyways because it's insecure. And then the third one, which is what I suggested you should do, is click on the button that says share files and folders using SMB, which is a system message block, I think. But that's the Windows file sharing protocol. So that's step one. So set up your machine and, and you'll see some other uh, options here, which will ask you, well, what folders would you like to share and also the users? that you would like to be able to access this. So of course you want to put the, the, so he wants to put the content in the folders that he's going to indicate as the share folders here. Mm -hmm. But then what should happen with any modern machine, what I would do is get an ethernet cable and plug it into the ethernet port on both of the computers. And you should be fine. What, what you should see is once you enable file sharing on the Mac, you should then be seeing it, uh, I believe in the sidebar in Windows, it, it, it's a network. Or, uh, uh, I don't recall the exact title, depending on the flavor of Windows, but yeah. where you see the shared, you know, other servers on your network, you will then see that. Now, what should happen, now in the bad old days, you had to get something called a crossover cable in order to get machines. I think any modern computer within the last three to five years is smart enough to look at the Ethernet port and no matter what type of cable you plug in, whether it be a crossover cable or a regular cable, will establish a connection. It'll probably come up with a 169 address, which is right. Yeah. So I, let, let me let me try and distill this down for you for you. You're, you're because I the advice you're giving is sound, but. Uh, enable files away. Yeah. Enable file sharing the Windows way so that you can see the Windows machine and and uh, the Windows machine can see you. And at that point, it should show up in your in your sidebar. If you want to make if you're doing this wirelessly, uh, it's going to be fine. But there is a way to make it faster. And that's where John's going with this Ethernet cable. But it's going to show up as long as you're both connected to the same wireless network. You're going to see it right away and you can try copying. And if the speed's not so bad or the speed is acceptable, then just do that. And it keeps it simple. If you want it to be faster, you can connect the machines via Ethernet, either by plugging them both into the same uh, Ethernet, you know, switch or hub. Or, as John's saying, you can just take an Ethernet cable and plug them both into each other. And that's going to work, too, because they're going to figure out an address between them. The only question is, which is going to be prioritized? Because if they're both connected over a Wi-Fi network and Wi-Fi is set to be prioritized on one of the computers, then that's going to be the way they transfer data, even though you've got an Ethernet cable between them. So you've just got to make sure that, that if you're if they're connected to Wi-Fi and Ethernet simultaneously, that Ethernet's prioritized. Uh, and the way you do that on the Mac is you go to system preferences, network, 
and then uh, hit the little. You might have to unlock the uh, the 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 little deal there, the little lock. And then on the little gear icon, the action icon, action menu, you can go to set service order. And you want to make sure that Ethernet is at the top of that list so that it will prioritize Ethernet over Wi-Fi if you are connected to both. Uh, so it gets a little more complex if you're going to talk about just, you know, plugging this cable in between the two machines. I would say try it with the Wi-Fi. And if that gives you enough speed, then sure. don't worry about the Ethernet. But if you want to do the Ethernet, you can either make sure Wi-Fi is turned off so that you're not mixing and matching both or that you've done this prioritization thing. That's all. Good point. Cause I actually just recently had to recreate a uh, time machine backup, which uh, I think we're mm. going to touch on later in the show, but doing a full, you know, multi, you know, hundred plus gigabyte time machine backup. I'm yep. definitely plugging my MacBook into my switch <laughs> and using an ethernet cable versus wireless. Cause wireless you're talking probably in order of magnitude, less throughput yeah yeah you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna take us on a on a little detour here john a journey a journey uh <laughs> because i just had the opportunity last uh last week i guess buffalo finally announced the their 802.11 ac routers uh Ooh. now yeah now 802.11 ac in theory uh will connect at 1300 megabits per second that is comparable to or, or as compared to 802.11n, which is what all the newer Macs kind of that's the, the, the current standard or the, the pre-current standard. Uh, 802.11n can do 450 megabits per second as long as you've got the right uh, setup in, in both your router and your and your Mac. Um, so, you know, quite a bit faster. Right. So they sent me uh, one of these routers and. And it's, it's, you know, it's a router and it'll do 802.11ac. But of course, I don't have any devices that will because Buffalo is the first to market with this. So in addition to a router, they also came out with something that looks exactly like the router, very similar to the router. Uh, that's a wireless client and it, it is purpose built to only be a wireless bridge. And what you do is you, you know, you set up your router wherever you're going to set that up, you know, your cable modem or whatever. And then, uh, and then you set up this wireless bridge and it gets its connection from the router. And then it's got a four port switch in it. So you can plug devices in via ethernet. Perfect thing to set up kind of, you know, at your uh, TV. So you can plug your Apple TV in and all this stuff so you can get better, better speeds. And it's interesting. Uh, I, I set these up and I got a 1300, you know, megabit per second link rate between the two. Now that's not the speed that you're going to get out of it, but that, that was the link rate. And, and it, it, it's, it's interesting transferring one uh file at a time across this link i got uh about 100 140 megabytes a second so you know 100 megabits a second rather so you know faster than 100 megabit ethernet certainly but when i transferred multiple files i got like 340 megabits a second which is really really fast for wireless and um and and I guess the the re and I saw this when I tested over 802.11n as well, and and then realized it it's sort of universal when you're doing five gigahertz stuff, John, because these support three simultaneous streams, right? Uh, and the new iMacs and the new MacBook Pros support three simultaneous streams. The MacBook Air only supports two, and the way you can tell is when you connect to 
Well, the new airport extreme routers, they not all airport extremes are created equal in this regard, but the new ones are the new ones also support three streams. They have, you know, the three antennas in them. And that's where you'll see when you go to the uh, airport menu, you go to the hold down the option key uh, when you're connected and you can see the transmit rate. And over 802.11n, if you support three streams on both your, your Mac and on the on the router, you'll see 450 megabits as the speed uh, on my MacBook Air. I only see 300 because it only supports two streams. And if for whatever reason you have devices that only support one, you'll see 150. But uh, but I found the same thing. I, I got like 105 megabits per second to this router over uh, 802.11n with one file and then like 250 or so uh using you know multiple files transferring so makes use of these multiple streams in a in a creative way so it's cool stuff uh and this router it's 179 bucks from buffalo same price as an airport extreme uh yeah. it's it's got uh an ethernet port on it as well it doesn't have my favorite dd work firmware john but Mm. Well, no, but and, and some of Buffalo's routers do. And my guess is that at some point down the road, we'll see one of these with it, too. But um, but, you know, I was looking at their firmware. Buffalo's uh, stock firmware is really good. It's even got a VPN server in it right out of the gate without the third party stuff or anything. So I'm I'm actually thinking about perhaps using this as my my main router, because the thing is, with those three by three antennas, the way it works is. Uh, you've got multiple streams happening simultaneously and everything gets transmitted over every stream. And then the receiving end picks the one that has the least amount of errors. Um, and if one has errors, then it just grabs to another one. So what, what the reason it gets faster is because you have less chance of having to retransmit missed packets over wireless. Right. So, so uh, it also means that you get longer range because, Chances are if one little bit of the frequency spectrum is blocked, maybe the other one wasn't. So I'm really I'm thinking about using this as my main router, even though it doesn't have a DDWRT on it. So I'll, I'll report more about that. But interesting stuff. And for one hundred and seventy nine bucks, if you need a new router now, this it's a yeah. dual band router, right? Five gigahertz and two point four. And obviously they support, you know, N and G and B on the two point four. And on the five, it has, well, AC. Uh, which is the new standard N and a uh, so it's good stuff. It was pretty, pretty, uh, I was pretty impressed by it. It's great to see. So nice. I'm wondering uh, if and when Apple will adopt AC because they're typically on the, the cutting edge for the wireless stuff. I agree. Yeah. My guess is we'd see it from them within the next year. Yeah. It's still a draft standard, but it's, I think it's right. in like the second phase of the draft. So it's, you know, it's pretty solid. Netgear is supposedly coming out with something. In fact, it may have come out this week already. I don't know. But they were, you know, hot on the heels of, of Buffalo. So, it, you know, it's coming, which is good. And it the, the standard should be ratified by this summer. And, of course, you know, if there's any changes, Buffalo can do those with a firmware update or whatever. So, fun stuff. Groovy. Yavo. All right. Um, uh, returning from our detour. Should we uh, should we go to Francis and and answer the time machine thing and then jump then jump to Mickey? Let's do that. Since sure, you, let's mix it up. Since you alluded to the time machine thing, might as well just do that. Uh, Francis writes. Uh, you stated time machine doesn't warn you when things go wrong. My experience is a little different. 
Uh, about a week ago, Time Machine advised me that it was failing to back up as there wasn't enough room. I was under the impression that Time Machine would delete the earliest backup and everything would be hunky-dory. So I don't know what has gone wrong. Around the, this time, w- around the time this started, I did delete about 100 gigs of stuff from my main drive. I checked forums and discussions and helps texts, and uh, some of the advice didn't work, and I wasn't sure what was safe or what was not safe to do. I deleted things like the Time Machine P-List, etc., with no help. Time Machine backs up my first two internal 2-terabyte hard drives onto an external 4-terabyte GoFlex. Uh, the other two hard drives are backed up to an old Drobo. Uh, I have a mid-2010 iMac, and the rest is uh, is not relevant for the show. But yeah, he's getting an error that says uh, the backup is too large for the backup disk. The backup requires 172 gigs, but only 79 are available. Um, so... Uh, this is interesting, John, because uh, Time Machine, in th- he's right. In theory, Time Machine should just delete the old stuff. But it, it perhaps because so much has changed on his disk, it's not able to go and clear out that much old stuff. Time Machine won't clear out so much that you are at risk while you're backing up, meaning... Uh, it's going to make sure you keep at least one full backup of whatever the most recent backup was before it deletes. It's not going to delete that before it copies the new stuff over. So perhaps things got so far out of sync that it just said, Hey, you know, I can't, I can't do this. That, yeah, that, the, last that's my time, guess. the last time my time machine got full, mm-hmm. the thing I noticed, and I think I mentioned this, but what I would see is looking in the console logs, and if you look in the console logs and you want to find out what Time Machine is doing, well, you want to probably filter on Backup D. And then you would just see the messages relative, uh, that are important for Time Machine. But I would see it constantly doing a, a purge or a, a post, uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, I think the word post is. Post-backup uh, thinning or pre-backup yes, thinning. Yes, thinning. Yeah. Yes, yeah. so thinning is what Time Machine does when it either expires the, the more frequent backups, which are the hourly or the daily or or the weekly, because it, it, as you move on in time, what happens is it gets rid of those until I, I think you're pretty much on a monthly level. Right. I think is is the lowest level of granularity that you will get eventually through yes. time machine. Correct. Yes, that's right. That's so right. the weeklies and the dailies will go away. And that's what it does when it does the the thinning. But I guess maybe the thinning algorithm and I'll talk a little more about my experience, but I guess the thinning algorithm isn't terribly smart in a lot of cases here. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. Well, my guess is it, right. It does what it does and then it stops. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so we're, <laughs> that's, I, yeah, I, well, I think, I think his situation I, and, 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 and sort of general advice is time machine is not perfect. It's a great, easy thing to use. And everybody, it, it works well enough that I think everybody should use it as part of their backup strategy. We part, talk part. Yeah. Yes. We've talked a lot about it, but you have to expect that time machine is going to get to a point where you have to just wipe it out and start over. Now, in depending on how much extra storage space you have around, you can mitigate any potential data loss by taking your old time machine backup and moving it somewhere and then starting a new on, you know, the, the drive you want to back up to and then maybe delete the old one or not, you know, depending on how much uh, archive you want to keep. But uh, but it, it, don't expect that Time Machine is not going to run into trouble 
And also when time machine does run into trouble, expect that, it, you know, most of the time you're just going to have to kind of cut bait and, and start fresh with it. That, that's, that seems to be the, the most and, reasonable. And you know, that's path. very timely, Dave. So I would say, so my position here, and I think you'd agree with me. I would not trust time machine to be my sole backup of my Mac. Oh no. I've run into enough screw ups and I'm going to tell you about a screw up here, Dave, that just happened. So I do have my MacBook Pro. I have the Momentus XT, which I copied using Carbon Copy Cloner from my old Hitachi uh, rotational drive. And it seemed that it was smart enough to realize that I had changed my drive and it actually had something in the console saying, oh, I'm going to inherit because it looks like you have the same content of what I just saw. So I'm, sure. I'm going to back up to the same time machine backup. And it seemed to work for a while. But then I got this dialogue, which made me decide to throw in the towel and, uh, <laughs> and start from scratch. And I don't know if you've ever seen this dialogue, but check this out. Uh, so it was a time machine dialogue that said the identity of the backup disk has changed since the previous backup. The disk may have been replaced or erased or someone may be trying to trick your computer into backing up to the wrong disk. Wow. And I'm like, what? Wow. And, and the options are use this disk or don't back up. And so I said, well, you know, I, I don't think anything's tricking me. I mean, all my time machine backups right now I'm doing to the Drobo. Yeah. So, so, so I doubt someone snuck into my house and replaced my Drobo with another one. It, it, it certainly could have happened. <laughs> don't listen. <laughs> but you didn't see me. <laughs> oh, you were in Connecticut on a, no, no, on a secret it mission. It wasn't me. <laughs> or one of your, your agents. <laughs> and they had two options use this disc and don't back up but then when i said use this disc it did some fiddling about and then it said i can't create the sparse image so i figured you know what even though time machine made a valiant attempt to try to use the same time machine backup even though i switched in a new hard drive it it, it failed so yesterday and that's why i mentioned to you so what i did is i basically erased that file and it actually took a good long time to erase that sparse image at least from the drobo um, once yeah. it did then i ran the time machine again and it's like oh oh the backup's gone okay so i'm going to start again and that's why i chose to do the gigabit ethernet route because it took about i think w with um the amount of data i was backing up i think it took about five hours oh that's and i think i was backing up and i think i was backing up and i'm trying to think let, let me look at my uh I'm at this drive here. I excluded some things like my aperture library and all that. But right now on my drive, I have, I think it probably backed up about 200 gigs and it did about five hours. Okay. Over gigabit ethernet. And now of course it's doing it over wireless and it seems to be okay. So, but I've never seen that. I mean, it's, it, it actually sounds like a good thing is that it seems time machine seems to be able to detect if something drastic has happened to the target drive. That's great. Like in this case, it's like, whoa, somebody may be trying to trick you. <laughs> but still, there's no there's no magic solution other than wipe it clean and start from scratch. Yeah. And of course, before I replaced my drive, I did a full backup to yet another drive. So I have, you know, a several week old full backup of the, the original in addition to the original rotational drive yep. in, uh, in addition to the Momentus XT, which is now my current drive. So. Right. So right. I have multiple backups so if something terrible happens I, I should be able to recover most of of what i've done awesome and speaking of backups mickey has a question hi john and dave this is mickey from phoenix arizona and i have a question regarding carbon copy cloner on your advice i started a carbon copy cloner backup 
uh, just about a month or so ago, and in the process of getting it set up, I fussed around with the settings a little bit and, and did some different things where I had it starting at one time uh, every day, and then I decided I wanted it to only be on certain days of the week, and uh, then one I changed it eventually to where it would actually wake up my computer in the middle of the night, do the backup, and, uh, you know, all these different things. Well, in the process, it seems like I've got maybe a press uh, file or something that's uh, not... Uh, accurately reflecting what I'm trying to do. So now, rather than just do one backup, it's actually doing multiple carbon copy uh, backups uh, at all the times that I set it up. So it happens like in the middle of the night, and then it happens at 5 and 6 a.m., and it, it just does it multiple times a day. Now, using App Cleaner, I uh, have seen that there are a number of prep files and, and different things, and what I'm, what I'm looking for is what would you recommend uh, that I use the, the easiest way to get back on track with this? Do I just completely uninstall uh, C-Cubes, I guess we'll call it, uh, or do I go ahead and uh, just try and blow away the press file and uh, go from there? So thank you very much for everything you guys do. All right, John, do you want to take this one? I am taking it, and I'm running with it. Go. Or maybe walking briskly with it. <laughs> so... First off, Mickey, it's awesome that you have all these backups happening. It's it's really a great strategy to to have more. No, no, this is annoying. And I think I know what happened here. So number one, Carbon Copy Cloner does support you scheduling tasks. And where are you going to find this? Well, you go in the Carbon Copy Cloner menu and you go to scheduled tasks and you can schedule it to do things for you on a regular basis. And that's awesome. That That's a nice feature of Carbon Copy Cloner or any backup software. Here's the problem, though, is that I think whatever he was using to clean things up, I think, was not quite smart enough in, in that it didn't look in all the nooks and crannies of the OS to find out where where are these scheduled tasks? Here's the question. Where are these scheduled tasks stored? How, how does it do this magic? And I'm going to tell you how I found out. And I found out, Dave, based on something. I think I, I would have eventually found it, but it, but it's not a plist file or a preference file because normally you find that in system li uh, uh, library preferences or one of them, one of your preference folders. But that's not where Carbon Copy Cloner stores these. And I think for good reason because they don't belong there. Here's how I found out. Now, remember they, you and I talked about this tool from Circle, which is the Computer Incident Response Center in Luxembourg. And they have a tool and they have a tool that was perfect because it, it actually helped me figure this out before I found found it via other means. Now, what this tool does, and of course, we'll link to it in the lovingly handcrafted show notes. It's already there. This. Oh, awesome. So what this tool does. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six, I think seven locations in Mac OS 10 where you can store. I guess it all hinges around LaunchD, we're going to call it. LaunchD is the creator of all processes. And when you start up your machine, you, you can submit information to this thing called LaunchD, which says, hey, you know, I got this process, and can you can you try to run this uh, on a regular interval? And actually, if it dies, can you restart it again? And uh, it could either be in something called launch agents, launch daemons, or startup items are, are three major places that you'll find on your system. And this is... I think essentially it's a folder action that tells you, and actually I've seen it pop up as of late, Dave. Now, I don't know if you've installed this and you've seen this. Yep. Have you seen any I, alerts on this tool? I, I have. Yeah. When I was installing something and it was, it was, the, uh, it was an okay thing that I was installing. It wasn't some virus, but, oh, sure. but sure. yeah, it popped up and it said, Hey, we're about to modify this. 
and I, it said, you, you know, reveal or something. And I said, yeah, let me, yeah. let me see. And then it showed me the, the, it actually, it told me because it's a folder action, it told me after it installed. Right. But, but it, it not only brought me to the folder, but highlighted the thing that it, that it was warning me about. Yes. It's awesome. Oh, God, it's so good. The same free. thing happened here. So I was researching this question yeah. and I created a scheduled task in carbon copy cloner. Boom. And then all of a sudden this thing came up and said, Hey, by the way, you know, uh, somebody's creating something in launch, uh, Damon's, uh, you want me to show you what it is? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And that was it. So I saw a file was com.bombich.ccc.scheduletask.abiglongstring.plist. So that's how, and it's probably the right way to do it, uh, how, how Carbon Copy Cloner is scheduling these recurring tasks. And this tool told me that. So I think what's happening is that the removal tool that you're using is not smart enough to look in library launch daemons to remove that stuff. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, I, I think almost certainly. So. Uh, if you get these recurring tasks or the link between what Carbon Copy Cloner sees, uh, or, or I'm wondering if because you got rid of one of the plist files, maybe one of the plist files is pointing to these files and maybe that link is broken and that's why they're, they're still happening even though you don't want them to. So cool. look in library launch daemons and uh, com.bombich.ccc, uh, whatever you see there, delete those and then these recurring tasks will go away. Awesome. Uh, I had two things. I actually made two little notes here, John, that I wanted to, uh, two. to, yeah, well, I wanted Excellent. to talk about, well, one was, Funny. one was during our discussion about the Dell laptop. Uh, and since I know we're going to get email uh, about this, if we don't offer the correction right now, a a AFP is not Apple talk over, uh, over TCP IP. Apple talk no. was actually its Ooh. own. No, Apple talk is its own networking protocol. And TCP IP is its own networking protocol. And so the two ne never shall meet. And in fact, Apple talk is dead now. Uh, we don't use it anymore. So, so okay. So it's AFP is now over. Did AFP used to go over Apple talk and now it goes over TCP IP? Is essentially, that yes, say? that's okay. right. Yes. So yes. it's still called Apple talk, but the, but the, all right. So Apple talk is, and I think it was serial. It was high speed serial, right? Well, no, you could do Apple talk over ethernet too. Um, and, okay, and that but worked. I think in the beginning it was serial. Remember the Apple Talk connectors? Well, I think in, in local, the beginning it was high speed serial. Local, local talk, talk connectors Ooh. were the serial connectors. Apple Talk was the the protocols. Local Talk was the 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 base the uh, the hardware layer, and mm -hmm. and so like Ethernet was the hardware layer. And I I realized I'm not getting right. the, the seven layers of the stack right, but but yeah, Local Talk and Ethernet are are kind of the, the you know the, at the same level. And uh, and then Apple Talk sits on top of either one. But but I don't know. Oh, is it? It's not. I don't think it's there in Snow Leopard anymore or wasn't there in Snow Leopard. Right. Yeah. No, Apple Talk was gone as of Snow Leopard, I believe. So, yeah, it doesn't. OK, it's, it doesn't exist anymore because AFP okay. works so well. So anyway, I just wanted to offer that correction. We don't need to go too deep. I just wanted to make sure we 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 got that straight. OK, Um, I also. Because I forgot last time and and two weeks from today, if I have my math right, we're going to be Ooh. recording Mac Geek Gab 400. And uh, and so if you count in base 10, that's important. If you can. And we do. We count. Actually, we, we are base agnostic, uh, although our shows are <laughs> our, our shows. do We do count our shows in base 10 typically, uh, although we're happy as as we've done in the past to uh, 
to celebrate different uh, bases in, in terms of milestones. But anyway, 400 is a big deal. And in fact, uh, shortly after we record show 400, we're going to record our seventh anniversary show too, coming up on June 13th. So that that's also a big deal. But, uh, but for show 400, we want to do something. We've always done uh, some, some various, you know, interesting topic for our sort of a departure topic, if you will, about our history or, or something like that for our, uh, for our milestone shows. And we've got some ideas, but frankly, uh, we haven't yet come up with an idea internally here that, that John and I are totally ecstatic about. So we're looking for, for your ideas. So send them in to us and, uh, and let us know, you know, what you might think about. And we've done so off the top of my head, and I'm sure I'm going to miss something, but, uh, for show 100, we basically talked about our computing history and then show, uh, you know, I can look this up on the web. I'm, I'm perfectly capable, John. So show 200, did we, did we miss that one? Show 200 was, um, gosh, I can't even remember. What do we do for show? We, well, at one point, one of them, we talked about our, uh, not just our computing history, but our online history. So, um, so that, that was interesting, uh, you know, kind of how we got to, uh, and that was not show 200. That might've been 300 because 200, we did a, a live chat and I definitely want to add that in for 400. So we'll have that for number 400, no matter what, but, um, but you know, we want to, we want to do something to mark the occasion. So any ideas you folks might have, uh, perhaps we'll bring some guests on or, uh, or something along those lines. But, uh, but anyway, if you have any ideas, let us know. Right, John. Sure. All right. And and how would you let us know? In fact, not only about show 400, your <laughs> ideas, but but really, if you have a question or a tip and we haven't gotten to tips in this show, but regular listeners know that we usually will and or cool stuff found, which we usually do as well. You can send them into us at feedback at MacGeekCab.com. And, you know, in, in this one case, I'm going to totally agree with my comrade here and that you should send an email to feedback at MacGeekCab.com. That's feedback at MacGeekCab.com. And, uh, and then you can also uh, call us at 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is 4335. Very nicely yeah. done. That's right. That's right. 4335. 433. Pace it properly. Five. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, but there's more, Dave. But wait, uh, there's there's less. Face, there's Facebook. Uh, yeah, they... Uh, never mind. We're not yeah. going to talk about their IPO because it's just... Uh, I don't know. That's good. I didn't buy I, any. Did you? No. No. It's like, it, it, oh, and it's, it's down about four points off the $38. Their PE is ridiculous. But hey. Hey. I'm no, sure they're going to stick around for a while. So if you want to contact us on Facebook, I think you have to like us. That's right. Facebook.com slash MacGeekCab. Yeah, and please like us on Facebook. It's good for it's good for the, you know, anything that you can do to, to help promote the show, honestly, is good for you as, as much as it is for us. Because, comments. Yep. It's good. We it, don't always mention it, but iTunes comments. You absolutely. go to iTunes, you find MacGeekCab, you can comment on the show, you can give us a rating from five to five stars. So That's right. Anywhere right? between five and five. That's right. <laughs> You can find us on Twitter. The show is Mac Geek Gab. He is John F. Braun. I am Dave Hamilton. Mac Observer is Mac Observer. And Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete, wherever he is. Uh, that's all just twitter.com slash Mac Geek Gab, etc. All right. Oh, Let's, one more person. Oh, go. Yeah, go. One more person. 
Well, our good friend Michael Johnston. Who, oh, I what use, does I, he I, do? What you're does right. he do? I usually wait until the end to to thank Michael. Oh, and but, but but no, it's it's good to uh, to thank him now. Michael is the one who takes this show each and every week. Well, almost each and every week, and converts it to AAC for you. He's the one that adds the chapters and the images and the links to this. Really enhancing the quality of the show into, as it's called, the enhanced AAC version. So thank you very much, Michael. Uh, if you want to learn more about Michael, and I do encourage you to, he uh, is the producer of We Have Communicators, which is a podcast all about mobile devices. And, uh, you know, at first, as with many things that Michael has done, at first I, I did not like the name of We Have Communicators. And and then uh, since I've come to love it, because it it's... Uh, you know, we grew up, John, you and I, most of us grew up watching Star Trek and, and we saw them, you know, they had their communicators and now we, we have communicators, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing that we've got these things that are perhaps even more full featured, although they still haven't, uh, I guess they, they, I guess, I guess the communicator didn't beam me up uh, or beam them up. It was just the location device. And of course the iPhone could do that. So anyway, his podcast is about uh, the iPhone, the iPad and uh, lots of fun stuff. So check that out too. And uh, thank you, Michael. All right. Speaking of Michael, we will go to, well, a different Michael, but he'll bring us back into the questions. Take it away, Michael. Hey, John and Dave. It's uh, Michael calling from New York. Uh, calling in response to your uh, latest episode uh, when the person was call- uh, writing in about uh, problems with uh, Apple Mail and Gmail and All Mail. Uh, I took your advice and decided to remove all mail as a, you know, quote unquote folder in the Apple mail client. But I've noticed since I've done that, that I don't, I will delete something maybe on my phone, uh, on my iPhone, which is set up properly as, as not just a Gmail, but as like an IMAP client. I've taken all the advice so that things will archive. Uh, and I found in Apple Mail that I will do a search, and I can't find messages that I've deleted from, say, the Gmail web interface when I'm at work uh, or my phone. Um, so I'm kind of confused now as to, you talked about it before, but I wonder maybe if it's time for a refresher course for the ideal way to set up Apple Mail to work with Gmail. Maybe you didn't want to do it on this last episode. I don't know. Um, but maybe you can email me. Uh, you can cut me off right here. And so we shall. Now, we'll talk about it here. It, I mean, you can go back into uh, last week's ep- episode and hear uh, about us disabling, you know, the all-mail mailbox. And I still maintain that that's, that's the right way to do it. But as Michael points out, that does leave a hole in that you don't necessarily have access to your archive because... Th- by default, the only place that this stuff goes when it leaves your inbox is all mail. So uh, what I highly recommend, and and the name here is somewhat important, name, create a label on Gmail called archive. Okay. And then that's where you want to file all of your mail. And what's great about it is with uh, iOS uh, 5 and later, and then also, uh, of course, uh, Lion, it will move that archive mailbox. It'll see a mailbox named archive and prioritize it and move it right up to the top of the list. So it's really easy. Well, not the very top of the list. It, you've got inbox drafts sent trash first and then archive. 
above all else. Uh, and, and that gets really, really handy for when you're archiving your mail off. It'll still be in all mail on Gmail because everything is. But uh, but when you do it this way and do it from the IMAP folder perspective, it keeps you from getting those duplicated messages. So name a mailbox archive and put things there uh, on my iOS device. Obviously, I just file uh, using the normal path because that's all you can do on my Mac. Uh, I don't I don't necessarily like to drag messages. I'm a keyboard shortcut kind of guy. So I use a piece of software called Mail Acton. Uh, from indev it's indev.ca but we'll put a link in the show notes and uh what mail act on lets you do and and think about this i mean this is i use it for this purpose but but uh, open your mind a little bit and uh and you might find many other purposes for it it allows you to assign a keyboard shortcut to enact any rule you want and these rules are separate from your main mail rules so uh, it's really really nice so i make a rule that says uh, move message to archive folder. And the only time it ever enacts is when I hit whatever keyboard shortcut I've associated with that. And that's really handy and really powerful. And obviously you could do lots of different things. I've got uh, one that lets me file to my spam folder. So if something's spam, it puts it in there, which then automatically trains Gmail. Uh, you could create one for, well, doing lots and lots of things. You know, you kind of, your imagination is, is the limit of the, the uh, capabilities here. So mail act on is, is what I use to make that process really, really smooth on my Mac. So that, that's all I got to say about that. You got anything else, John? Nope. No. Huh? All right. Well, well the, though, did you say, so you want to manually create an archive folder? That was the one thing that stuck in my brain here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got to create it either on, uh, and you can do it via the Gmail web interface to create a label called archive mm -hmm. or okay. I created it on my, from my Mac, it, you know, when you're in mail, you just go to, uh, what is it? File. And, uh, well, where do you create a new mailbox? I always screw this up. So I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. You go to the mailbox menu and you say new mailbox. And when you do that, it's going to ask you uh, location of it. And you want to put it on your IMAP folder, not on my Mac. Um, and then that, 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 that's it and call it archive. So that would be the way to do it. Mailbox and then new mailbox. No, okay. not good. Well, actually, well, but, well, but no, to tell you the truth, I have not yet done a archive operation uh -huh. with mail. Yeah. And I mean, archive is, is just, I mean, it, it, again, the name right now I'm looking, for example, I'm looking at my, uh, TMO mailbox and it has 15,017 messages in it in the inbox. Well, in my Mac Observer mailbox, for example, I have messages going back to forever, actually about but, 1998. Well, yeah. I've no, never that, taken them and put, to put them elsewhere, which I think is what the archive operation does, right? No, 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 no. Uh, well, archive is just a folder to store your messages in. Okay, outside of your, your main one. So, so it, it'll, right. it'll take messages. So for example here, if I wanted to maybe store like every year's worth of stuff somewhere else, I could use the archive operation to do that. Stop. I'm not talking about an archive operation. I'm talking okay. about a folder name okay. archive. Got so, it. so there is no, there is no archive operation there. There is, I'm just creating a folder named archive. But when you do that, iOS prioritizes that in its lists, which makes it easier to, to find. 
Right. So if you're if you want to move a message to your archive folder, you don't have to scroll down and find that archive folder. It puts it right there on the first page of that. All right. List. So let me ask you this then. Yeah, yeah. I haven't explored this, but it's a we're having a live discussion. Yeah, no, it's good. Well, in mail, in the message menu, there is something called archive. Oh, uh, yeah. OK, that what's um, that doing? Maybe I got confused, but I've never done that. What does that do? Or maybe that's for a later time. No. So you're talking about on this is on your um, in mail app. Yeah. Message menu. Yeah. Are you there's on a, are says, you on a lion machine? Correct. Okay. Okay. And there's an item that says archive and I don't know what it does. I don't want to choose it because I don't know what it does. Yeah. Uh, so that's new. I believe in lion because it's not okay. here on my snow leopard machine. Let me make sure it's not uh, on my snow leopard machine. Yeah. There's, there's a archive mailbox, but, uh, but not. So the archive mailbox thing will, if I am not mistaken, will just let you save that mailbox as a folder somewhere uh, or as a, as a, as an inbox file, right? Which is an industry standard way of, of reading mail. Uh, I believe that doing archive to messages, huh? That's a good question. Uh, well, I think I found it. So I did help on it. So, so, okay, yeah, the, good. so the other, so the other troubleshooting tip here, folks. So I went to help in mail app on my lion machine. I typed in archive. Initially, it only matched on menu items. But then eventually, because I think it reaches out to Apple. Yep. I then have help topics. Okay. And the first one that came up is archive messages and mail. And what does that say? It says archive messages. You can store messages in an archive mailbox so you can quickly find them later when you're ready to take action. Uh -huh. Select one or more messages to archive. If you select a conversation, all messages in the conversation archive, then step two, choose message archive or click the archive icon in the mail toolbar. An archive mailbox is created for each account whose messages you archive. So, okay. So I'll have to look into this more, no. but it sounds like a way. I know. Go. I know what this is. Yeah. This is going to use that same mailbox named archive to put your stuff okay. into. Yeah. So Got you it. can, so there you go. So that, so it, my use of mail act on kept me from ever investigating other ways of doing this. And you found another way to do it. You can just use the, the archive option in the messages menu and with lion okay. mail. Yeah. But it's, it's going so to do is, is to clean up your other mail folders, I guess. Well, okay. So you and I come from, this is a longer discussion, but this is a good discussion to have at, because you and I come from a day and age when the, the best way to uh, manage our, our email, assuming we wanted to keep things and, and you and I are, are in lockstep on this. We kept, I think both of us have kept every email we've ever sent or received. Uh, mm -hmm. I certainly have. Okay. So we, we both have. So in the old days, you know, we, I think we both started with Eudora and the, the search functionality was, you know, slow and limited. So what you did was you created a mailbox for each, uh, pretty much each topic I had a mailbox for each, you know, person, like I had one for you and, you know, and then I had one for my internet account, you know, service provider. And I had one for each advertiser that we worked with at backbeat media. I mean, this sounds crazy. I had 1200 uh, mailboxes at wow. one point. They were all and nested. probably right. And you probably write rules to try to sort things, right? Um, no, I would manually, or manually do <laughs> I, would, I would manually put things in there because I, that was the only way. I mean, with 1100, what's there 1200, whatever. I mean, there's no other way to do it. So, but it was fine. I was really fast at it. Um, and 
but but the times have changed, right? And the paradigm and and Gmail has been pushed has been pushing this paradigm on us for a long time. And that's what their whole concept with their their labels. They say you don't need folders. It's it's crazy. We're a company that that has perfected search. So don't worry about folders. Just put all your mail in the all mail folder. And uh, and then when you want to find something, just search for it. And a couple of years ago, I finally adopted this. Now, I still have all my old mailboxes from the old stuff, but new stuff I just throw into an archive folder and by golly, it's right. You know, this is the way to do it. I just throw everything into the archive folder. And uh, and when I want to look for something, I just search my entire mail and it comes up fast because search technology rocks now. So so Apple's concept, Apple's following that 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 same concept where you just have one mailbox that you just throw all that stuff that you want to keep into and then just let it be there. And that's that's what this is doing It's just taking it and putting it in that folder. That's good, right? All right. Yeah, I know it's 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 it took me a while to wrap my head around this, but but it, it has been a better solution. There have been v- few, if any, occasions where I've said, dang it, I wish I had all that in, you know, separate mailboxes. It just, you know, search is good now. Didn't used to be. But you found a you found a knowledge base article on this, John. Uh, well, within the help in, in oh, mail I see. Yeah, online. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, it eventually comes up with the help art. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, which I think you could probably find also in the, in the help database. Yeah, so, that, so, so yeah, having the mailbox named archive is the, is the trick. And then, and then, like I said, okay. it'll show up magically on iOS and it'll be, it'll, it'll have a, if you have a mailbox named archive, it will have a different icon next to it in, uh, in lion mail too. And, and that's just, again, to, to highlight it. For, for no better reason, but I do actually. So, all right, so we're here. We might as well keep going with this. It's time for a deep dive folks. Um, I don't keep everything in one archive box and that's just because uh, I don't necessarily want to keep all my mail on the server. I'm going to run out of space. So I create a separate archive folder. Actually, I create two separate archive folders for each year, each calendar year. And I throw old messages in there. Uh, so, I mean, and I haven't created 2011s yet. So I've got all of 2011 and, and you know, uh, what, five months of almost six months of 2012. So it's probably time to go and, and do that. Uh, and and so, so I do that and archive them off onto my Mac. The other thing I do is I create archives for my sent messages. And I put those uh, by calendar year as well. So and that in that way, it just you know, it keeps it from filling up the server. So that's all good stuff, right? Fantastic. IMAP makes this way easier, right? And oh, sure. because, because like I said, right now I have my, uh, 2011 and, and, you know, half of 2012 in my, on my Gmail. And that way I can get to it from any computer, uh, as long as I'm using IMAP. Now, if you're using pop, uh, you might want to switch over to IMAP. And uh, and that leads us to Scott's question. Scott says, I moved my personal domain to a new service provider that now allows me to have IMAP access to my mail. IMAP was not an option with my old provider. Now I want to access my mail using IMAP and not POP3. When I made the change, I edited the account settings and mail app to use the new servers, but I did not find a setting to change the service from POP to IMAP. 
Do you know if there's any way to change the service type? I would prefer not to create a new account since I have messages on my Mac that I do not want to lose, but I want IMAP. How can I do this? Okay, so Scott's right in that when you remove a pop account from your Mac, it is going to remove all of the messages that are in your inbox, sent box, drafts, trash, and I believe spam, although that might not be too bad, Uh, but it will delete those. And in theory, they may or may not exist anywhere else. So you might be deleting the only copies of these messages, especially sent messages because pop mail doesn't store those on the server in, in a typical sense. But uh, because of that, and because that pop and, and IMAP require different folder structure on your map and a different management technique and all of that, Apple doesn't allow you to flip flop back and forth between the two account types. So you have to delete the pop account and create a new IMAP account, but not in that order. I, what I would do is create the IMAP account. You can, you can have access to the same account twice in your mail installation. So create mm-hmm. the IMAP account uh, and then move all the stuff that's in your sent folder on the pop account up to the sent folder on the IMAP account. And then that'll upload it to the server uh, or archive it off, but do something with it. And then the same with the uh, inbox. Remember, a, a pop inbox only exists on your Mac. Uh, the IMAP inbox is synced with the server. So, you know, figure out what messages you need to 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 put back on the server, essentially. And uh, and and that and do that from your inbox. And, and the same with trash, if you care to keep it. And uh, this is again, spam and, and drafts. And then once you're you're happy with that, go into mail, go to preferences, go to accounts choose your pop account, go to the advanced tab and uncheck the enabled this account. You want to disable the pop account that will keep it from showing up in the list. It'll keep it from checking mail, but it will also keep those files on your hard drive and then live with that for a day or two and make sure that you're okay. And you haven't forgotten anything or missed anything. And then when you're ready, you can, you know, just go and delete the the pop account back in the same spot in the mail account uh, settings. IMAP is a good thing to do, though. We like it. Mm-hmm. Don't we like it? And what you said is exactly what I did. So, yeah. It is. Okay. First, create the IMAP account. Then think about what you need from your pop account. Mm-hmm. Copy it over. And it can take a, well, in my case, it took a good long time uh, to keep your, your, so to make sure you don't get bored, you may want to click on the activity menu to just watch what's happening. It's a good point. And it actually may help you understand what's going on. Because not only are you going to see a progress bar for copying messages from one mailbox to the other, but you probably also see reference to cache files and, and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, again, just so it's not a, a mind-numbingly boring copy operation, look at the activity menu and it'll help you understand more about how IMAP and and POP and, and the whole mail ecosystem is uh, is working. But that worked for me. As you said, Dave, once once I was comfortable that all the data I had in my pop account was in my IMAP account, then I wiped out the pop. Yep. Okay. It freed up uh, not a heck of a lot of, well, it, it freed up some disk space and it, well, it just made it because yeah, yeah, you don't want to maintain both because then it just gets confusing. Right. Right. Um, uh, rewinding a little bit. One nice thing about having this archive option in Lion's Mail is you can there is a toolbar button 
that will do this archive operation. So if you are a click with the mouse kind of person, you can highlight several messages or one message, and then you can add this archive button to your toolbar to make it for a shortcut. If you don't want to use something like mail act on to do it from the keyboard. So I just wanted to throw that in there. It's good. Uh, we have we we have two little uh, follow ups on defragging that uh, that we want to go through. So, John, why don't you take the first one? I'll take the second one and then we'll uh, and then we'll wrap this up for the week or for oh. today. So you want me to get Joel? Yeah, 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 yeah. OK, from Joel. Greetings, Dave and John. Thanks for making uh, Let's move on here. Is this the right one? Yes, the right one. Okay. Um, I've been having random kernel panic. Seems to happen during high activity. Clone or iPhoto i2. It's launching. Can't complete a clone at all. Change the RAM and same thing happens. My suspicion is failing hard drive, but smart test shows okay in tech tool. Any ideas? This is what shows up in the error report. I'm not going to read the crash report here, but here's the important part that he identified. And I'm going to say in general, this is where you want to look when you get a crash report. So the line here that caught my attention was backtrace, terminated, invalid frame pointer, blah, 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 kernel loadable modules in backtrace. This is where you want to look, because for the most part, my observation has been whatever comes after the word kernel loadable modules in backtrace is the kernel extension that detected something bad happening and caused your system to crash or do a kernel panic. Uh And in this case, it said... Oh, kernel loadable module and backtrace. com.apple.iokit.ioahci block storage. And then dependency, com.apple.iokit.io storage family and other ioahci family, blah, blah, blah. All right. So what does all this, what does this soup mean? <laughs> or or uh, alphabet soup mean? Well, What stuck out to me was AHCI. And what is AHCI, you may ask? Well, AHCI is Advanced Host Controller Interface. And that's just a fancy pants name for your SATA interface, or at least a portion of what the AHCI does. So my suspicion in this case is that there is definitely a problem with either the SATA controller or the hard drive, or maybe the data on the hard drive. And the thing is the kernel extension that deals with the AHCI or SATA interface is detecting a problem and it's like, up, oh, I'm going to crash. So. Fair enough. And then, and, then, and Joel got back to us and he said, well, uh, yeah. And, and, and the point you brought up and I'm going to beat you to it, but then yeah. he wrote back to us and said, you know what? And I think this is what he said uh, to distill it. Well, you know what? I had a failed defrag operation recently. And I think that may have scrambled the data on his hard drive. And maybe this, kernel extension is getting upset about that I and think he, that's the conclusion he said he went to, to a, a a backup prior to this defrag and and he said he had he had like quit in the middle of a defrag or, or canceled in a in a defrag i think was what he said and he went to a backup prior to that and everything's been fine so it really wasn't a hardware problem but it was like you said that you know it, one of your criteria was the data on the drive can be uh you know enough to set this kernel extension off if it's that bad and sure enough i you know uh, hopefully keeping our fingers crossed that uh joel's restore from backup keeps him running so good stuff very very interesting that a defrag could do that 
Uh, you know, we did. We talked about defrags back in well, in, in show number. Well, that two. was uh, well. You know, I, I, I that was my hesitation with defrag for the longest time, and it was not on the Mac, but it was on Windows. In that, I had a defrag fail, and it was a world of hurt after that. In that, something was so damaged that my machine was. was uh, I think I had to do uh, a, as you call it, Dave, a nuke and pave. And that, uh, yeah, defrag still makes me nervous. In, in that, if if something interrupts it, yeah. Chaos. Bad. Some utilities, I think they can do as much as they can as far as, you know, buffering and, and all that. But if you hit, if you terminate a defrag at the exact right time or wrong time. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what it is. I think this is, I think this is what happens. So uh, certainly a full backup before you do a defrag, I think is, is, is probably highly recommended. Oh, I would say definitely. I w- it would be foolish. I mean, you're moving stuff around on the blocks of the drive. You know, if, if there ever, there is an opportunity for catastrophic failure and data loss. That's it. You know, so yeah, definitely. Well, you know, I got to say I use drive genius and drive pulse. And when it says that my drive is defragged, I, 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 yeah, I, I trust them, but I, I should probably make a, yeah. Well, you an have additional enough, backup every now and then you have enough backups going anyway. So you're probably, all yes. Right. Yeah. Well, I do via sugar sink and Dropbox and yeah. crash plan and, and all that fun stuff. So right. yeah. And, and time machine and carbon copy cloner. Right. Sure. I mean, so yeah. Uh, you know, when we talked about defrags, as I always did, I, I, uh, I let the people know, uh, who make the software that we mentioned. And I, one of the pieces of software that we mentioned was ID frag, and James from Coriolis Systems got back to us after listening to the podcast and had some uh, some tidbits to add and, and some corrections to make. So I'm going to read uh, most of his letter here with uh, for to share the share the knowledge, because this this dude's smart. <laughs> he knows a lot about defragging, which is really is he good. The, is he the main? Is he like the, the head developer? There? I think so. It sounds like it. Yeah, okay. I think so. So this is good, right? Because he makes ID frag. So. It's good that he actually really knows a lot about this stuff. Um, makes me feel even better about uh, ID frag. So he writes, uh, I listened to the disk utility section of your program with some interest. OS 10 does defragment some files. Uh, these need to be less than about 20 megabytes. And these files don't need to be anything to do with the hot zone. Um, the hot zone is a section of the drive that OS 10 moves frequently used files into. This is near the beginning of the drive for fast access. IDFrag maintains the hot zone and keeps the files that should be there in the hot zone. Defragmenting by cloning won't do this. We also put the files in an optimum order, as you mentioned. I also had a quick listen to your section on corrupt files. Uh, The hard drive does keep a CRC at the end of each block. When the hard drive reads the data, it also checks the CRC. And if it doesn't match the stored one, then it knows that that section of the disk is wrong. It is likely that it will try and read the data several more times in the hope that it can get the correct data. If there's a lot of corrupt blocks on the drive, then, of course, these rereads can slow things down quite a bit. Uh, This is a drive level thing. You may be able to find reports of error five in the log files when this is happening. IDFrag, for instance, will report files that can't be read due to disk corruption if it finds any. Putting a checksum on a file yourself protects against other programs changing the data or make sure that the files are downloaded that you downloaded aren't corrupt. This isn't the same as disk level corruption, of course. Uh, these will fail if, if there is disk corruption. However, they may not tell you that the block was unreadable, which is what they should do, as there are different problems. Uh, it will depend on the program that you're using. So, yeah, so very interesting that the drive itself does this uh, CRC thing. 
So good stuff. Thank you, James. That's uh, I love it when we get information like this direct from the people that know far more about this than we probably ever will. But uh, but it's good to try and absorb as much as we can. So. And it prompted me to dig a little deeper, Dave. And you remember how we talked about smart and how smart. Yes. Can uh, not only indicate whether your drive is about to to roll over, but there are also a number of parameters that uh, many drives store. And I found this. So to back up the uh, what James said here was that there is a smart parameter, and I found it on at least the drive in, in one of my computers, called UDMA. Not sure what that stands for. Well, DMA, direct memory access. But anyways, they have a parameter stored in the drive. And if you use something like Smart Reporter, which, which I just love to death, um, UDMA underscore CRC underscore error underscore count. And that's what he's talking about. So you can ask your drive, well, okay, how many CRC errors have you seen? And at least the drive I have, the count is zero. That's a good, that's a good number. UDMA. That's right. interesting. Cause that's, uh, that's prior to SATA, right? We had ATA and then we had ultra mm. DMA, which went, I think eight regular ATA stopped at, I don't know, 66 megabytes a second. And then ultra DMA went, went a hundred or 133 or whatever, whatever it was. So. Yeah, that's interesting that that would be. Oh, it's that's prob- what that stands for. Okay. It's probably named that, uh, even though it's still used with SATA. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the the parameter was there on the drives, and then we moved to SATA, and it's like, well, it's the same parameter. You know, we don't want to. Don't, other, no need to mess up all the smart utilities, right? Now the so. the other parameter that that caught my attention because we, we've talked about this in the past with other devices, but they also have another parameter that the drive stores called either hardware ECC recovered or raw read error rate. And I think this is even deeper now ECC and and I've worked with this in different realms, but ECC is error correction code. And I think this again is lower than a CRC, but in a lot of disciplines, when you store data, what you can also store is something called an error correction code, like barcodes, for example, do this or DVDs. I think you remember right. we talked about this, but right. I'll mention it again. DVDs will store something, in, and I think the one popular algorithm is called Reed Solomon. So what happens is you store enough additional data about the real data, where if the real data gets scratched, like on a DVD, you have enough additional data. So it's wasteful, yes, but it's good because you can look at this extra data and recreate the original data. Yep. And it makes sense. So DVDs can get scratched. So you may want to store data somewhere else so you can recreate the original data. Barcodes, which I've worked with uh, in a number of realms here, if a part of a barcode gets smudged or, or whatever, you can look at this additional ECC data and recreate the original data. So hard drives apparently do that at a lower level as well. And that, and the more I read about this, the more I get kind of scared. And that hard drives apparently, I mean, there's... There's a lot of wacky stuff like you and I talked about uh, magnetic fields affecting things. And apparently, like I looked at my drive and it had a lot of ECC errors, but it was able to recover from them. Yeah. And then cool. I guess the data. Well, again, they're doing their job. But yeah, uh, but no, it was no, great. Good. It was great to get this. I, I think that the the thing is that there's both the hardware level and also the software level. And I think I linked to a utility that can create. A, a CRC at a higher level and try to recover as well. And I think that was, that was the point he was making is you can do it at both the, the, the hard drive does it at, at its level, right? You can do it as an option at a higher level. 
Cool. But it was good to learn. It's good Thank stuff. Thank you, James. Yeah. Awesome. That wraps us up. You got anything add, Anything to add here, John? I, I already I talked I added, about my... I added enough. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm looking here just to make sure. We talked about Mac Geek Up 400. Please do send in your uh, your ideas. We're, we're really, uh, you know, I want to make sure we do something good there for, uh, for 400. We're certainly not going to uh, phone that one in, as it were. Not that we phone anything in, but, you know. We did have someone suggest to bring Waz on. I don't know if we can do that on short notice. Uh, I will ask the last time. Yeah, no. it, yeah, it depends. I mean, we we tried to have we were going to have him on for whatever the last one was when we had Ted Landau and Adam Christensen, uh, but mm-hmm. he, he had to go to Paris or something. So yeah, I'll ask him. I, I want to. That, that's one idea, but you know, just having Waz. Listen, Waz is cool. Don't get me wrong, but uh, sure. But I, you know, I'd like to have good topics and and that sort of thing. So uh, so we'll see. Um. Yeah. All right. So send in your ideas. I want to make sure we do something fun, and and I'm hoping that uh, somebody else. So you're thinking maybe video? Oh no 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 chat room. No chat. I want to do a a live audio stream and uh, and a chat room. And honestly, uh, that's that's something I would really like to do for every show that we do is the live audio stream in the chat room. Uh, So, but we'll we'll get that going. That's easy. Uh, That's crazy. Why? No, you don't have to be in the chat room. You can just do the show, but you know, our <laughs> listeners so they can chat with each other. Yeah. yeah. No, oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. That's that. I, uh, we, we thanked Michael Johnston from, we have communicators. So thank you, Michael. Uh, we want to thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all of the bandwidth, of course. And we want to thank our sponsors, of course, VMware with their coupon code MGG to get your 10% off until at least until the end of May. Uh, Gazelle, to sell back your old Apple products. Smile with PDF Pen. Can't miss PDF Pen. And of course, BB Edit from Barebone Software. And I would say keep your eyes peeled for a Yojimbo update from Barebones because they say it's coming before the Mobile Me Sunset hits. We can only hope. Have a good one. We will be back on Thursday for Mac Geek Cab 399, but then we are off on Monday next because it is Memorial Day. So uh, we are back here for the next regular show in two weeks, and that will be show 400. So have fun and don't get caught. Made up.